you know, the Christian life is not always about advancing. Sometimes to move forward, you're actually going to go backwards. You may have taken a few steps backwards. And I want to encourage you this morning not, not to be discouraged. Because going backwards is often the actual process of moving forwards in the Christian life. God still loves you. He still believes in you. He still offers His grace to you, though you need to recover. Someone once said that the Christian life is not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. You ever heard that before? You know, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul at the end of his life in a prison says, I have fought the good faith, I have finished the course that has been set out for me. Paul describes the Christian life as this race, and it's getting to the end, to the finish line. And yet Paul himself, the one who said that, that he got to the end of the, the course, was the one who said, I am the chief of sinners. So what I want to do is kind of maybe, maybe adapt that a little bit, and I want to say that the Christian life is not that you won't fail, it's what you do after you fail that counts. How you get back up. And that's what Joshua chapter 7 is about. It's three steps forward and two steps back. It's what C.S. Lewis described as the law of undulation. In the screw tape letters in chapter 8, he's describing the Christian life as this undulating movement forwards. Peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs. The Christian moves from these peaks and these great victories to these troughs of discouragement, these troughs of setbacks. And yet we return right back to where we started and we just continue in this process of undulation. And God often uses the troughs in our lives more than the victories in our lives, as Lewis says. The challenge is, is how do we recover and continue moving forward? Joshua was all about moving forward. We're moving forward into a promised land. We're moving forward into what God has for us. We're moving forward into this place where we will be in rest with God, His presence. It's all about the presence of God. See, it was far more than just simply a land. It was about actually being in the presence of God, in His presence, where we find ultimate rest. The world needs peace today. The world needs rest amongst all the chaos that we experience. And it's found in God. It really is. And God knew that and was calling His people to a land where He would be and His people would be, but it's a, it's a moving forward. And now here we are, poised in, John, in Joshua chapter 7. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've been given great instruction. Be strong. Be courageous. I give you the land. They, 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 they push through the river, Jordan. They pile up the rocks. They do this odd thing and circumcise all the males. And they prepare themselves. And then they go into Jericho. And the walls come down. And it's one victory after another after another. And they are really moving. And then Joshua 7 happens. It's three steps forward and two steps back. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says that the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban of Achan, the sons of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, 
from the tribe of Judah. This individual, Achan, took some of the things under the ban, it says, and therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Achan took some of the things that he shouldn't have taken from the Jericho experience that led him and Israel into this place where God's anger burned against them. And then it says now Joshua, it says, sent men from Jericho to Ai to actually conquer it. And they go back from after the spies go in and come back and say, we can take Ai, but we don't need our full force. We only need two to 3,000 men. They go in and they fail miserably. And they, def- they retreat. There's no victory at Ai. And so they run back. 36 men die in the experience in verse 5. And Joshua throws up his hands in verse 7. And says, oh Lord, why did you ever even bring these people over to the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say since Israel has noticed this in verse 8? turned their backs before their enemies. In other words, we're in defeat, not victory right now. That's the backwards. It's the three steps forward, and now we're going backwards. And in verse 8, Joshua identifies it. Why are we going backwards and not forwards? It's a massive military defeat for Israel, and yet it's it's an awesome opportunity for Israel to learn an invaluable lesson about failure. And so it is with us as well in the Christian life. In chapter 7 and 8, God teaches us what causes defeat, but also how to recover from it. And I want to talk about three things. I found three things in Joshua 7 that help us recover from failure, from discouragement, from falling back, which we will do. Here it is. The first thing we have to learn to recognize when and why we violate the clear instruction of the Lord. Why do we do that? We've got to understand when and why we do that. The second thing is we've got to get back up. We've got to rise up and get up and get moving again. And the third thing I've discovered in here is that we have to remove the very things that have caused us defeat. We've got to remove those from our lives. It's called, they're called devoted things. And so we're going to look at all three of those. And if we understand them, you will recover. And you will find forward progress again in your faith. And so let's take a look at these three things. And the first one is found in chapter 7 in the first nine verses. We learn that we must recognize when and why we are violating the clear instruction of the Lord. I mean, the instruction of the Lord was laid out in chapter 6. If you notice it, in verse 17, 18, and 19, God made it very clear, when you go into Jericho, I will give you success, and the city is under a ban. It shall in all of its contents belongs to the Lord. Now, what's, what's confusing about all? I mean, really, when you think about it, it, what's confusing about all? When God says all is under the ban, what is all? I mean, some things must not be, right? All things are all things. God says, don't touch it. And he wants to teach them a lesson. He wants to help them trust him more than what they get out of the destruction of Jericho. So he says to them, all things are under the ban, belongs to the Lord, only Rahab and the harlot and all who belong in her family shall live, but you shall only keep for yourselves 
from the things under the ban. Now, when I first read that, I put in a little four between keep and yourselves. It's not keep for yourselves, it's keep yourselves from. Do you see that? There's a big difference. It's the clear instruction of the Lord. But all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron, verse 19, the holy are holy to the Lord, they shall go to the treasury of the Lord. So some things are for destruction, some things are for dedication. But it's really clear. The, the instruction of the Lord is really clear. Yet, we find in chapter 7 that some of the things that under the ban Achan took, they find that they have defeat as a result of that. And then Achan is called out in the rest of the chapter. And in verse 21, and I'm jumping ahead, but notice what it says. When Achan is called out, he identifies what he kept. And it says in verse 21, when I saw among the spoil, notice that. It's the devoted things to the Lord. It's not spoil. There's a difference. Spoil are things you get. Under the ban, devoted things are things you don't get at this moment. They're not spoil yet. And Achan called it spoil, not under the ban things. You notice the difference? When God says, no, 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 wait, hold on. No, that's under, I don't want you to touch that. I want to teach you a lesson. I want to train you up. I want you to trust me. No, 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 leave that alone. What is he saying? All things, leave those alone. It's under the ban. These are devoted things. Achan identifies them as spoil, meaning those were for me. And notice what he says. He found this beautiful mantle from Shinar. It's a Babylonian robe. It was made of gold threads and silk threads. It must have been absolutely gorgeous. I mean, beautiful, if you like robes. It must be beautiful, right? And then he also found some silver and some gold. 200 shekels of silver, about six pounds, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels, probably about a pound, pound and a quarter of gold. I think I'll just kind of keep some of that stuff for myself. I mean, come on. Nobody's going to miss that. Just a little something, right? And yet we have to understand that God takes these things seriously. Was it worth it? Doesn't seem like it. Because in the rest of the chapter, we realize that Achan was called out and he and his family. And he suffered the consequence of this action in order to purify Israel for the future. And it was an object lesson. And we, sometimes we don't understand it. I mean, Achan loses his life in the midst of this thing. Thank God we are under grace. But in the early church, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing. They offered some property, but they held some back. They told the Lord, they told the church, hey, look at you can have all of it. And yet that wasn't truthful. And in order to learn a very important object lesson in the development of the early church, they both died. And we go, whoa. It was to send a message that God's serious about his instruction. And so we learn something about this. And I want to talk a little bit about the anatomy of sin and how we get ourselves sometimes mixed up in it. Notice in verse 21, I saw the spoil, then I coveted it, then I took it, and then I concealed it. Do you see that? All in one verse. There it is. The anatomy of sin. I saw, we see things all the time. We have desires. We desire for our pleasures to be met. And God made us that way. And yet, when we covet, we move to the next level, we see something. Coveting is actually wanting something that is not yours. 
So it's something that God says, no, no, no. That's not, I, I didn't give that to you. I gave that to somebody else. But we want it. And we see it. And when you focus on it long enough, guess what happens? You begin to covet it. You want it. That's yours. And the more you think about it, right? You go on to Amazon and it's what you want. You saw somebody have one of those. You want one. And you just keep looking at it and keep looking at it. Guess what? You're going to eventually buy it, right? Now, sometimes that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. No big deal. But what if God is, doesn't want you to have that? Let's, let's go into the area of, of clear instruction from the Lord. What are some of those kinds of things in our lives? The sad thing I find about this is that once it's coveted and taken, it's concealed. Because Achan could not walk around camp with a gold robe on, like, what in the world is going on here? We're all nomads. We're all wearing, you know, you know, brown and black cloth and sackcloth. I mean, we don't have nothing. I mean, Israel didn't have any of those resources. So here's a guy who probably would stand out like a sore thumb wearing this gorgeous gold robe, right? Like, where'd you get that, Aiken? I don't know. I found it. I don't think so. I think I saw a few of those in Jericho. And I don't think we were supposed to get those, right? And then a little gold and silver. So what does he do? He has to hide it. He doesn't even get to enjoy it. How about that? Isn't that interesting about sin? You don't even get to enjoy it. God just snatches the joy away from the action. Reminds me, reminds me of a 400-page book I'm trying to get through, Goldfinch. Right? I'm still wondering why I'm reading the book. But apparently it's this amazing book, but a lot of the British critics say it's not that great of a book. And I suspect, I don't know where it's going to end, but it's about this little boy and his mother, and they're in the Met Museum, and they're looking at the Goldfinch painting from the 1600s from from this, this Dutch painter, and, and it's on loan from the Hogue, and it really was on loan at the Frick. But anyway, for the book, it was in the Met Museum, and a terrorist attack, and it, it's bombed, and he loses his mother. And on his way out of the museum, he grabs the Goldfinch painting, the very small painting. It's worth, probably worth millions and millions of dollars. And he, for, the, for 400 pages, he's got it concealed as he travels the world. He can't even enjoy the painting for fear that he will be found out. It's obviously... It wasn't his. He can't even enjoy it. That's what sin does in our lives. You know what's so interesting to me? The Israelites were not hard of hearing, they were hard of heart. And there's a big difference. They knew exactly what God had called them to. And all he had to do was wait. Check it out. Chapter 8, verse 2. Look at this. You shall do to Ai. So they go through this ritual process in chapter 7. Now go back into Ai. And when they go back into Ai in chapter 8, verse 2, it says right here, just as the king you did in Jericho, I want you to do in Ai. And take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set up an ambush. And then again over in chapter 8, they go in, verse 27, and they take the cattle, the spoil, as plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. All he had to do was wait just a little bit, and it would have worked a lot better out for Achan and his family and for Israel. You just wait a little bit, and we don't know how to wait. We don't know what to do with wait. We want it now. We want it right now. I remember Josh McDowell in the 80s did a whole ministry. Josh McDowell was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ and was 
traveling the country, defending the faith, and, and wrote evidence that demands a verdict, and more evidence that demands a verdict, and, and historical, analytical understanding of the historicity of Christ and the resurrection. And then he started this campaign across college campuses called Why Wait? Sexual Purity for College Students. It was a powerful movement of why it's right to wait to have sex before you get married. Because God intended sex for marriage. And it is best in that situation. It is best in that scenario and that scenario alone. God knows what he's doing. But it requires us to wait. And I remember my wife getting caught up in that as dating. We were dating in college, a little bit in college, and Denise was finishing up. And we applied those principles in our lives. And I'm thankful for that. It's worth it. It's always worth it. Because just around the corner, God gives us the spoils that we desire. It's not that God is holding back. It's not that God doesn't want you to have anything. God wants you to have the desires of your heart, it says in Scripture. But it's always in light of His instruction, isn't it? And so just waiting just a little bit. I mean, why didn't they remember Joshua 1.8 that says that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written, and then you will have success. See, they knew that in Joshua 1.8. That all they had to do was meditate on the word, know his word, follow his command, and they would have success in their life. It would come. And I'm telling you, when you look back in your life and the opportunities that God has given you, hold it. No, that's not for you. Wait. No, I'm I'm going to trust the Lord in this area. I'm not going to push forward. Young people with credit cards, it's a whole other area. Young families. It's like, man, you got a credit card, you can go out and spend anything you want. You know? And if you can't pay it off that month, just carry the interest. Wait. Learn to wait. It's the best thing in the world not to be in debt. I mean, they say Andy Stanley did this whole thing on relationships and how to find the right mate. And he, he said, like, basically three things. Like, deal with your, your bag of crud that you have in your life, your issues. Get out of debt and get out of bed. And you're going to have a great relationship someday. I mean, those are the, his three words of wisdom to young people that are heading off into life, deal with those issues in your life that are causing trouble relationally. Um, Pay off those debts. Don't live in debt. And second of all, stay out of bed. And guess what? God will honor you. He will honor you. That's what we learned in this passage. We also learned something else, and then I'm going to move on. But in chapter 7, it says when the spies went up, they came back and said, we don't really need a full army. They were overconfident. Oftentimes, victory leads to pride and overconfidence and defeat. And I think sometimes when you have enough victories, you're like, hey, I got this thing. I got this thing. I got it covered. I know how to do this. And the thing that we need to learn is stay humble. Where is there an inquiry from the Lord in here? There's no, the Lord said, or we asked the Lord, or how many people should we take into battle? What's the size of the army? They never asked those questions. They just plowed in with confidence, overconfidence, and they got wiped out. We learn in chapter 8 that once they do defeat the the, the army, about 12,000 of the AI AI people were in the battle and were defeated. So it's a pretty good size. So they went in with about 3,000 thinking that they would take it. And there was this sense of overconfidence. 
And that oftentimes is where we end up. Why do I do this? Why am I so anxious? Why do I need to move forward? Why do I think I need that now when God is saying around the corner it's going to be yours? God blesses you when you wait on Him. He does. And you end up with what you really desire. And it's better. Sometimes less leads to more. It's a biblical principle. Here's the second thing I learned. you got to get up when you fall. See, notice what happens. They fall to the ground and they fall on their faces in chapter 7 and it says they spent the whole day on their faces. In chapter 7, oh Lord, God, why has this happened to us? And they're on their faces and they've tore their clothes and they fell on the earth on their face before the ark until the evening, before the evening sacrifice. All day. Have you ever spent all day on your face? I went to this event back in 1999 in Washington, and they called a million men to come to Washington, D.C. to pray for our country and pray for men and pray for a movement. We got on these buses in Chicago, and we took two buses of men out there. It was exhausting. The bus broke down halfway. One of the guys was a bus mechanic who actually fixed the, 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 the air shocks in the bus. I mean, it was like total miracle. We were down, down and out. We were done. We were, we were going home. We weren't going to the march. or the, It wasn't a march. It was a prayer. It was a prayer. And, and uh, he fixed the bus and gets the air shocks, the airbags working on a full-size bus. I mean, we didn't know the guy was on the bus. And, and we get there, and we fall on our face for an entire day. It was exhausting. I was like, I want to go home. I fell asleep. I was hot. I was tired. But I tell you what, I've never done anything like that before in my life. Fall on your face before the Lord for a day. And then it says, God says to the people in verse 10, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? In other words, you've fallen on your face. And I know why you've fallen on your face because verse 11 says, you've sinned. You've transgressed my covenant. I mean, to sin means literally to break the command of God. That's what sin is. To miss the mark, to go a different way, but to disobey the command of God. Now rise up. Don't sit there. Don't stay there. Rise up. I remember a time in ministry when I was in Chicago. It was a disaster. It was a total disaster in ministry for me personally. Made some mistakes, miscalculations. And I was messed up. Ended up leaving that church. And I was done. Angry, disappointed, bitter, frustrated, felt alone. I was, I was done. I quit, got out of ministry, started a little home business. And I started this business, and I just literally walked away. I still believed in God. I still loved God, but I, I didn't know really where he was in my life. It was a Job 23 moment where, you know, like, Lord, I'm searching for the throne room of God. And I was really searching to make my complaint, kind of like Joshua here. Like, Lord, why did you do this to us? And God's going, I didn't. You did this. I told you you'd have success. And so I learned this invaluable lesson, humbled myself, got back up, got back into ministry, and it was one of the most productive years of ministry of my life. I got back up. Reminds me of the story of Sergei Romanov, Rachmaninoff, a beautiful composer, 1873, born in northwest Russia in Novgorod. 
Novgorod is very famous. And I remember in my Russian history class when I was in Vienna, we were studying politics and history of Russia and Europe. And then we told the story of Ivan, Ivan the Terrible, who built, remember he built St. Basil's in Moscow. Have you ever seen it? It's one of the most beautiful cathedrals ever built in the world in the 1500s. And he went to the architect of St. Basil's and said, could you build another? And he said, yes, I could build another. And he had his eyes gouged out. So he wouldn't build another one. Because that's the kind of person he was. So Ivan goes into Novogorod in like the 1500s. That's where all the princes lived. It was a very prominent part of Russia. And he attacked and destroyed them so that they couldn't overtake him as the czar of Russia. Fast forward a few hundred years. What happens is a young pianist is born, Sergei Romanov. And at four years of age, he becomes this amazing protege. And he's an amazing pianist. And by 1897, he performs his first symphony, Symphony Number no. 1. The piece was brutally panned by critics and nationalist composers. In fact, it was depicted as the Ten Plagues of Egypt. Depicting it as, as the fact that it would only be admired by inmates of a music conservatory in hell. Could you imagine that? You just spent your whole life and now you're ready and you've performed a symphony, which ain't bad. It's a great symphony. And it's depicted as the symphony from hell. He fell into a three-year depression, maybe four. We're not sure. But at some point, after some counseling, encouragement by his family, he got back up. And he wrote one of the most amazing Piano concertos number two that has ever been performed as a result and went on to win many, many awards. Phenomenal. Don't stay down. Get up. Get up. We live with the reality, as Martin Luther said in Latin, simul justice et peccator. It became a rally cry for the Reformation. Simul, simultaneously, we are righteous and sinners at the same time. Luther understood our nature, that we had a sin nature, and that we had a propensity to sin. And yet, through the imputation of Christ, we were raised out of that. Simultaneously, a sinner by nature, now justified by Christ. And we live in that reality today. Our lives, one moment We are taking some steps forward. We fall back. We get back up and we keep moving. I found in C.S. Lewis's writings, I love Lewis. I had a pastor when I was at Berkeley who would actually lead classes on C.S. Lewis. And so I would arrange my class schedule in order to attend his lectures on C.S. Lewis. They were so profound. And he'd sit up there and there'd be this big you know, reel-to-reel thing going around, recording his messages as he would take each one of Lewis's books and lecture on them. And I read Lewis, and, and I loved reading C.S. Lewis through this pastor, Earl Palmer, and he inspired me to the theology and understanding of the Christian life through C.S. Lewis. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia has three instances where these young kids that go into Narnia get back up, discouraged, disappointed, they run into Aslan, the lion, and they get this lion strength in one situation. 
and another, they realize that Aslan comes and winter is gone and they have to move forward and they spring and spring comes and it's a metaphor that they will now spring forward into the kingdom. There's one scene in the fi- one of the last books, The Silver Chair, where the two kids are now in Narnia and they have to play a role in helping the kingdom and all of this and and Jill and Eustace find themselves there and they, they, they're just about ready to get into Narnia and Eustace falls over a cliff and, and, and Aslan shows up and breathes on him and breathes him right into Narnia and then Jill kind of walks into Narnia from London and they're now in this magical kingdom and she begins crying and Lewis says, crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you will have to decide what you will do. See, crying's okay in the moment, but eventually you've got to decide what you're going to do. What are you going to do? The next move is critical. What are you going to do with your life? And you need to get up, dust yourself off, and keep moving forward. And it says that Israel consecrated themselves. And then, as we come to a close this morning, one last thing. Number three, the rest of the chapter from 12 all the way to 26, they had to remove the devoted things from their life. They had to remove it. And in this case, Achan came forward. He said, I'm the one who sinned. Here's the robe. Here's the silver. Here's the gold. It is me and his family that conspired with him and they were burned and stoned and buried. It was done. It was over. Israel was moving forward. It was a harsh reality. And yet what it did is it sent a fear of God through the camp of Israel so that they would trust the Lord. And there are things in your life that need to be destroyed. There are other things in your life that need to be devoted. The Christian is divided in two components. The the things that need to be destroyed and the things that need to be devoted. I go back to chapter 6 when it says that these things go to the treasury of the Lord. Verse 19. But in 17 chapter 6, these things need to be destroyed. And we need to decide which is which. What areas of your life need to be destroyed that are causing you to fail? It might be an insight. It might be a thought. It may be a a critical judgment. It may be bitterness. It may be a desire, a a covetous heart. Maybe hardness. It could be a lot of things. It, It could be that you want something that God's saying, no, wait, just hold on. Wait, I got you. I got this. Hold on. Be content with what I give you. With what you have. Can you do that? No, that needs to be destroyed. So that needs to be burned up. And if there's any thread connecting you to those desires, those things you want that you have to have, you've got to cut those off. Try this week by saying no to something in your life that keeps tripping you up. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think that thought. I'm not going there. Okay, that's not for me. I'm not going to pick up the phone. What is it? What is it? The destruction of something that's causing your downfall. But the second thing I find is that you have to devote yourself to the Lord. Fully devoted to the Lord. All the wealth was God's. It goes into the treasury. Isn't that a principle in the Christian life? 
that God owns all things. He owns everything we have. It's all his already, right? It's his. It's not ours. We just give it. We get to enjoy. We get to steward. So you don't own anything. You steward everything. You don't own anything. God owns it all. He owns everything. And he just divvies out all the blessings and all of God's resources to us. And we become his stewards. And we honestly, at that point, devote all of that to the Lord. So I ask the question about my time. I ask it about my money. I ask it about uh, every area of my life, my possessions. Lord, how do you want to, how, how, what do you want to do with it? How can I demonstrate that I'm fully devoted to you in all areas of my life? Maybe it's making a decision this week. Okay, I'm going I'm to devote something to the Lord. I don't know. I, when I was in high school, I had this cool stereo. I've told the story before. It was the coolest speakers. They were like this big, that tall, these D4s and a Kenwood receiver. I mean, I worship this thing. It was so cool. It was in my room, and I would blast it. And the Lord just said, it owns you. So why don't you just give it to me? So I gave it to the Lord. I gave him my stereo. And for an entire year, people like would ask, can we use that stereo for a party? Can, can that go on the ski trip? Can, you know, that, that was a traveling stereo system. And I just continued to let people use it. And I would take it to the high school, and it would show up at parties. It was the Lord's. Now, I got to enjoy it at home, but I devoted it to the Lord. Simple thing. Crazy. Still remember that. Still have that stereo. How about that? The Kenwood receiver still works. And I'm pretty old. So, well, let's conclude. Chapter 8 is amazing because it's victory. It's victory. They go in. It works. They occupy the land, and they worship at Ebal. And they set up an altar to remember the Lord. Set up an altar. So here we have it. You want to recover? You've got to learn when and why. You violate the clear instruction of the Lord. Get back up and remove the devoted things from your life. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for our time together this morning, the rich time in your word. And I pray for uh, these wonderful dear people that have come. And, Father, I know there's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of struggle. We could use that word. Um, it's not all perfect. Many of us are carrying discouragement, defeat around. And, um, and you're calling us to rise up. Move on. Get moving. And I, I, I pray, Father, I pray for those that are feeling that, and I pray that they would fall on their face before you, Lord, consecrate themselves, be set apart, and be risen up by you to newness of life as you offered that to us, Jesus. It always comes back to the gospel that we died, we're buried, we're resurrected in newness of life in the name of Jesus. We have that in you, Jesus. We have that this morning so that we might recover and find grace again where sin abounded. It's now more grace and more grace. And we can rise up and walk forward. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.